From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm Kate Young. I think our approach is making it better, improving the land every time we have a chance. We are benefited by the, the sweetness of the maple, right? So that's a source of, of sweetness for us and for the people to come after us. And hopefully the pawpaws will be one of these days. Somebody can enjoy that fruit. Yeah. This week on the show, we explore what it can look like to have a vision for your land that extends beyond yourself and even your family. We speak with Helen Vasquez and Larry Gillen about their decision to leave their farm to a tribal college. And Josephine McRobbie visits with a regenerative farmer building soil in the sandhills of North Carolina with the help of some four-legged teammates. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, and we're continuing the celebration of our 15th anniversary with two favorite stories from 2022. In order to grow food, farmers need healthy soil. In one particularly tricky region of North Carolina, a regenerative farm is enlisting some unusual farmhands to help build the earth. Josephine McRobbie visits Slow Farm in the Sandhills. So when we got here, there was really no thriving topsoil to speak of. There were places where you could just stick your whole arm in, like up to the elbow, because it was just sand. It was dead sand. We're located in an area in North Carolina called the Sand Hills. So this all was, you know, beachfront property millions of years ago. The Sand Hills is aptly named. Our soil is sand. Rachel Herrick is the owner of Slow Farm in Cameron, North Carolina. Her previous career is as an artist and educator, but she's also a third-generation farmer. My family background is is in this very traditional farming model. We poisoned all the things and we uh, we plowed all the soil and you know it, it, we just did what everybody else was doing. That's the way it was done, and we did it. We did it well. Like I, you know, I'm not here to disparage anybody who comes from that traditional farming background and, and is proud of the work that they do. It's hard work, and you don't make a lot of money on it, but. What I saw growing up was farming that broke people in every way that it could and broke, broke ecologies as well. Originally from Maine, Rachel bought her 47-acre property in 2015. <laughs> uh, my husband Carl is a uh, postmodern intellectual historian. <laughs> so he's a history professor, and it's a very specialized field. You can imagine there aren't a whole lot of jobs for postmodern intellectual historians. So we went where the job was, and that was here. Uh, for millions of years, this was a massive longleaf pine forest. And then uh, 175 years ago, they logged it out for pine and, and turpentine. And then from there, just be- began to sort of use conventional uh, farming methods, which then became increasingly industrialized to grow things like cotton and tobacco and and food crops and things like that. Sand doesn't have a lot of nutrition in and of itself, so then it became a high chemical input situation. We already have problems with water retention in the sand, and then you add chemical fertilizers and it just really wipes out any chance that like a soil mycelia network could possibly have. 
In order to grow fruit trees, vegetables, and pollinator gardens, Rachel needed to rehabilitate the soil, and that would be a difficult and lengthy project. I started by just walking the land every day with my dog and uh, looking at what was quote-unquote wrong with it and what, and what was great about it in terms of land and farming opportunities. She first tried to reinvigorate the soil through green manuring methods by mowing the fields of grass and weeds around the property. The biology was so dead that nothing decomposed. So we would mow and then it would just sit there, the grass clippings, the, de- the trees, in pristine condition for like 18 months. That's how dead the soil was when we got here. Uh, and so we knew, looking at that green manuring process, that we needed biology. We needed to bring biology in and, and livestock is, you know, like the, the gateway to all that goodness. They, instead of just mowing it and letting it lie, you have the animals eat it, run it through their digestive systems, break it down all the way and uh, infuse it with all kinds of bacteria and all that stuff and then excrete it and it just really jump starts life in the soil again. <laughs> Arriving at Slow Farm, I'm greeted by potato and turnip. Potato is our three-year-old Maremma who guards the livestock, and turnip is a nine-week-old livestock guardian in training. Livestock guardian dogs do important work for the farm, including keeping the perimeter safe in this rural area. We're really committed to living peacefully with wildlife and encouraging wildlife as part of the ecosystem of this place. Part of living with this wildlife means predators. We're standing over by a flock of guinea fowl. We definitely think of all of our critters as our teammates. Yeah, so they... Sorry, that's a a predator call. So he saw something... The guineas are alerting the dogs to a hawk flying overhead. As they settle down, Rachel explains more about Slow Farm's teammates. Every animal complements the greater project of land restoration and farm management through what they eat or hunt. So the guinea fowl that we have here, they're basically like tick Roombas. They just sort of zip around and eat ticks and fire ants. And that's fantastic. Uh, Fire ants can actually cause a lot of damage. Say if you've got piglets out on pasture and they get into a nest, they, they can really, really hurt a piglet. Nearby, there's a small herd of brush goats. They manage the scrubs, vines, and sapling trees on the farm. And what they want to do is eat from like as high up as they can reach, like on their hind legs, down to about chest level. And evolutionarily, that's brilliant because that's where their intestinal parasites live, is in the bottom 18 inches of grass. So if you make them graze lower, you're going to have uh, major uh, parasite issues. So what we had was like this 18 inch tall buzz cut that the goats had done an extraordinary job on. And we looked at what was growing here. And what was left was a bunch of broadleaf stuff, dock and cat's ear dandelion and stuff like that. And so I was like, well, geez, who wants to eat that? Because it's kind of, you know, like dock is slimy and it smells like frogs. Uh, no, you know, but then I thought, oh, well, pigs would eat it. Pigs were animals that could work over the weeds in the fields as part of their regular diet. And this meant that Rachel could avoid using herbicides. But there was a problem. Pigs are rototillers on feet. Like they just, a conventional pig can plow and walk at the same time. They just can root two feet down. And so if your project, like ours is, is to restore topsoil, you do not want to be disrupting the root mat that you're trying to develop, uh, the mycelial network you're trying to, you know, encourage to come back. 
She started doing more research online, and that's how she heard about Cooney Cooney pigs. Coonies are sort of exploding in popularity, both in, in the science community and also in the farming community. As farmers figure out that like there is another way to do pigs, there's another way to do pork. This is the most eco-friendly pork you could possibly produce. Cooney coonies are small, maybe about half the size of a commercial hog. They can eat a lot of grass and weeds, and so they need only a small amount of supplemental grain in their diet. They've got really efficient metabolisms, so they can actually get nourishment from plant matter in a way that other pigs cannot. They were bred to have short noses, so they don't, they don't till the soil. They're actually physical marvels of like the perfect grazing pig. So they're here, they're eating all those broad leaves that nobody else wants to eat. Closely associated with the Maori people of New Zealand, kunikunis were bred for their temperaments as well as their meat. They're incredibly docile. They're easy to work with. I grew up with the big 700, 900-pound white York pigs, and I've got the scars on my back to prove it. Like, they're, they're tough business. I, I liked pigs, but I never thought I'd be a crazy pig lady. The coonies have made me a crazy pig lady. Hi. Hi, kid. Hi, Nessie. Hi, Cupcake. These guys live for a belly rub. Meeting some of Slow Farm's kunikuni pigs, it's easy to understand why Rachel loves them so much. They are very friendly, and they look almost like cartoon characters. Can you also describe what they look like? Because they're incredibly cute. They are. (laughs) So if you imagine, like, a bat had a baby with a pig you sort of end up like at a kunigune. They've got these short little faces and they've got large ears, uh, dark skin under a quite heavy coat of, of hair that makes- them- We're hanging out under some acorn trees right by Rachel's front porch. It's acorn season right now. And so they are all about some acorns. This also has the side benefit of uh, discouraging world populations close to the house by just sort of managing their food resources. Because of their cultivation as village pigs by the Maori, kunikunis stick close to home and they don't try to get through fences. So here in North Carolina, some of Rachel's pigs have the run of the farm. We have our teenager pigs get to do something I call free-range university. So when they're teenagers, they get to be out free-ranging the whole 47 acres. And this just makes them really smart, savvy uh, grazers. It teaches them about all kinds of different plants, but it also lets us socialize them in a different way. So these are pigs that are going to be here their whole lives. At one point in the 1980s, there were only about 50 purebred kunikunis in existence. A conservation association in New Zealand was able to bring the breed back, and since the 1990s, they've been growing in popularity in the U.S. Slow Farm now breeds and sells registered and pedigreed kunikuni pigs, but only on a small scale. Kunis are fantastic pork. They are a meat pig. They were raised to be a meat pig. When I say they lived in the Maori villages with the Maori, it wasn't because the Maori needed pet pigs. It was because they were raising them as primarily lard pigs because lard is an important way of conserving food. And I'm happy to support farmers who want to raise kuni meat for their own consumption or kunis on a small scale for for resale or, or whatever. Everybody's got their own farming path to pursue, and and I'm, I'm here for it. Rachel is picky about who she sells to. 
So there's actually a lab at the University of Vienna that studies Cooney's in particular. They have a, it's a Cooney lab. They're observing their social dynamics, which Cooney's are, they are more like heavily social than most breeds of pigs uniquely social like when I sell piglets I don't sell one piglet by itself because it won't thrive I always sell in sets of two uh, for the pig's own welfare I I'm not afraid to turn somebody down for the pigs if they're not a good fit their setup isn't the right fit anybody who was going to try to do a confinement setting for coonies like that's that's a disaster I'm not going to sell you pigs they're not going to thrive in that setting Slow Farm partially operates as an educational farm. They put on workshops and activities for schools and the public and other farmers. And Rachel shares her knowledge about these unique Cooney Cooney pigs whenever and wherever she can. I try to be a resource for other people who are interested in the breed. So I write a lot of articles on my website and uh, we also do Cooney workshops. That's still, that's been an ongoing thing through COVID. We can do them privately instead of group tours. We just do them socially distanced on outside. Um, but then, you know, I always, I joke, but I'm not joking, that all of my piglets come with tech support. So anybody with a slow farm pig, you know, can text me at any time and get some guidance on, on this or that. After six years at Slow Farm, through this program of animal-managed soil regeneration, Rachel has started to see some improvements to the land. There's still a lot to do, but she welcomes the challenge. Everything we do is a slow process. That's why we decided to call it Slow Farm. It's like, it says what we are and how we do it. And it's also a really useful day-to-day reminder for, my, for me. When, uh, so this is my full-time job. And when I'm out there and I just get impatient like everybody else does, I'm like, wait a minute, this is Slow Farm. I'm the slow farmer. Take a breath, lady. <laughs> So, um, so it's useful. It's a useful name that way. For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie. And I'm Kate Young. Earth Eats returns after a short break. My name is Helen Vasquez. I'm Larry Gillen. To get to Helen and Larry's farm in southeastern Indiana, you head south out of Paoli on some two-lane farm roads. Eventually, you hit a gravel road. It's hilly and wooded. And at some point in their driveway, you encounter the river. Back in the old days, it was accessed. uh, Now there is a ford across the upper portion of the Potoka River, and that's how we get in and out. Uh, We have a footbridge uh, when the water is up that uh, we park and walk across, bring the groceries, and and, uh, walk up to the house. uh, uh. On this day, the water is up, so we park the car and assess the situation. I'm with Marie O'Neill. She works with the Sustainable Food Systems Science Group at Indiana University, and they're the ones who told me about Helen and Larry's story. Marie has been here once before, but she never had to take the footbridge. The bridge looks like something out of a fairy tale. It seems to be hanging from the trees. It's made from sturdy cables, pulled taut, and lined with small pieces of wood for the decking and rails, which appear to be in varying stages of decay. 
The bridge squeaks and sways as we walk across, single file. But I have the utmost confidence in its ability to support us across the river. The structure is solid. Buildings are about a quarter of a mile from the ford and well up on the hill out of the floodplain. And the property uh, is 160 acres. It's in Southeast Township in uh, Orange County. There's a little village about a mile away called Valine. Most of the property is wooded. It's up on, up on some hills. Uh, and there's some bottom land along the river, about 15 acres. And then the property is 90% surrounded by the Hoosier National Forest. Larry will tell you that he and Helen are ordinary people. You know, Helen and I are rather ordinary people. But if you ask me, they aren't like most people I've come across. First of all, what struck me right off the bat was the spirit of generosity. It was a cold day in late October, and after our long drive and chilly hike up the hill, they ushered us into a tiny, hot, cedar-lined room in the center of their log cabin home. Larry's an engineer, and he's got the heating system for their house rigged up to this sauna room with a wood-fueled stove. We stepped inside for a moment to take the chill off. Sorry, Larry. I don't know anyone else who has a sauna for a furnace. This was my first time meeting them, but they greeted me as if we were old friends. In the middle of our conversation, we took a break so they could serve us ginger mint tea and a lovely pumpkin bread that Helen made from one of the giant kusha squash they harvested from the garden. And their generosity extends to the way they talk about the land, which is what brought me there in the first place. We would love this land whether ours or not, you know, because it's like it's, it's, we're part of it. We always really feel that we don't own the land. You know, we are taking care of it. We've been provided the opportunity and the honor of, of taking care of the land. But let's back up a bit. I wanted to hear about their backgrounds and what brought them to growing food and how they ended up on this patch of land in southern Indiana. I grew up as a, as a farm kid, and my mother grew the garden. My dad took care of the livestock and the field work. And so as a little kid, I tagged around with her. And uh, my grandmother lived in a small town nearby, and I remember them, my parents and my father's brother and sister telling uh, my grandma she couldn't garden anymore because she was getting too old and she was going to hurt herself. But that didn't stop her. She <laughs> kept gardening anyway. So just little memories like that from my childhood. And was that here in the Midwest? Or? Yes, up, uh, up northwestern Indiana. Helen spent her youth in San Antonio, Texas. My father was a watermelon guy. Mm-hmm. So he grew watermelons, and he grew all the things, but the best thing, and a little bit of cotton. But that didn't stay very long, you know, and the kids weren't very, we were not very open to go pick cotton. It was very hard to work. You know, I remember the first time I went, it was very hard. But the watermelons were lots of fun, and we were called, because he was so good at it, we used to, he was used to call the watermelon man, and we were the little watermelons. So in Spanish, we would be called the, the sandillitas. That's where our nickname, and my mom always had a 
garden and an herb garden. I didn't even know anything about that she would qualify now as an herbalist because she had all these all these herbs. Uh -huh. And if we had a little tummy ache, you know, we got this, and if we got that, we got that. If we couldn't sleep, we got this. So we got all the little teas and whatever it was. And I've always wanted things to grow myself. My mom did can. Mm -hmm. And I learned from her the canning practice of yeah. canning. But we didn't have an extensive like we do here. Uh -huh. But we did have the tomatoes and the green beans and the, the potatoes. Though they describe themselves as farm kids, the land they live on now was not inherited. Larry purchased the land in the 1970s, but he lived away from the farm much of his adult life. I did live here for a year before I, uh, Helen and I met in... Uh, 1978, 1979, I lived here for a year uh, and then went back to school and, and that's what uh, got us to where we could, you know, come here and after our careers were finished and, and now we've, we're settled in, but uh, yeah. Well, it had to be paid, yeah. <laughs> so we had to work to, you know, we, we had a job, Larry was an engineer and I was a bureaucrat in the federal government, so... We worked all over the place, mainly in Texas and, and Illinois. And, and, and uh, when we were in Chicago working, we traveled down here a couple times a month. Uh, oh, it was nice. a six-hour drive each way. And, uh, but this was our, our getaway from, from the chaos of, uh, of Chicago. Mm -hmm. When we think about it, I, we don't know how we did it, really and truly. Of course, we were... Much, you know, that's 35, 30 years younger. But we will, he will pick me up in Chicago, in the downtown, because that's where I worked, and try to get out of Chicago at 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, you could imagine. So we would get here tired and, and then sleep a little bit. And then in the morning we get up and start planting trees, do whatever. He built a pond up there. While we were here, so we were always coming to do something, but okay. mostly outside, right. because we weren't going to do the inside until we were ready to come in. Uh -huh. And so there was a lot of improvements that Larry built that with some help, of course, but the pond up, up in the hill, it was one of our major accomplishments and lots and lots of trees that we planted. Mm -hmm. We planted... Uh... The most we planted were white pines, and uh, we planted river birch along the river. We planted some Virginia pines in some very eroded areas. This land, and I have pictures from 1938 aerial photographs, and there were very few trees here. It was all cleared for grazing, oh. except in the very steep ravine areas. Those were the only places that had trees. Everything else was, was cleared by that time. By 1995, Larry was ready to settle on the land permanently. Helen kept working for six more years, spending as much time as she could on the farm. By 2001, she was ready to retire and join Larry at the homestead. Now that they live on the land, they grow a lot of food. We grow a varied vegetable garden. A lot of annuals. We have a 2,400 square foot uh, high tunnel. And so in the winter, we eat kale, spinach, lettuce, mm. carrots, mm. beets, uh, Asian radishes. We also in there have, 
strawberries in the spring. We also have uh, three fig trees. Mm, and, I made our, our first gem. Sorry. Yeah. And part of our focus on growing things, and we don't market much of anything, we give some away to local outlets and we share with friends and neighbors. Uh, but one of the focuses is to, to grow things that we can store and keep easily, like winter squash is the best example. Also potatoes, sweet potatoes. These things, you harvest them and you can put them away for several months uh, yeah. without you know, doing very much with them. So that's, let's say that's one of our main focuses, along with the wonderful things we can grow in the summer, all the green beans and cucumbers and okra. And, Tomatoes and peppers and and, uh, and, uh, and patches of senias, oh, yeah. beautiful senia patches that we have, just gorgeous. And um, Larry is very humble in in um, saying this because he doesn't want to say this. But one of the things that we did in, when we had last year more than this year because there were other other pressures, but we used to give uh, take bouquets of senias to the nursing home so that they could share them with the with the people and we also the um lost river and market we also gave them some so that they could share with the with their customers just give it to them and so we also uh, if we have access like right now we have a lot of of um uh, korean radishes and we have taken them a lot of these radishes, the various kinds, to the farmers, to the uh, uh, deli, the co-op, so that they can enhance the the CSA that they have, so they can add this to their to their. So we we give our little. And we also grow a lot of garlic. Uh, about oh, yes. four thousand garlics we planted here uh, just before Halloween. And uh, we've kind of leveled off at that, uh, that kind of uh, scale. And then in the spring, we've got beds uh, beside the garlic that are set up for uh, onions. And uh, garlics, of course, keep well in the winter. We harvest them in July and plant our own seed from what we grew the year before. And uh, we invite, because 4,000 is a lot of holes to poke in the ground and, and cloves to... to uh, put in them, we invite uh, members of the community over. And so we have a little garlic planting festival sort of thing. It's, it's not uh, overblown at all, but uh, Helen uh, is the ringleader of a, a great meal when we finish that day. And so uh, we have a fun day of it with community. And, and after we harvest, um, they can, they'll, they'll have all the garlic that they need for the year. Okay. So all the all the participants benefit of the garlic harvest. Yeah. yeah. And they benefit from your meal. What did you make this year? <laughs> oh my God! What did I don't even remember what I did this year. Did we have potatoes? No, I don't remember. I I know last year I had a a five five bean chili, and they loved it so much. They said. I said, no, I'm not doing it again because it took me 10 hours to do it. <laughs> so I probably, who knows what I did this year, but it's always something fun yeah. and something good and they enjoy it. And we have desserts and all kind of stuff. So it's a good, it's a good coming together. Yeah, it's a community event, but you're also getting something done. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah.
And it's, it's a, it, we've seen members that come them for two years in a row. But it's just, I think that it gives a different sense of the, what the community is all about. So we had we get dirty, muddy, because most of the time it's about that time of the year. But then they come and we had to cover your shoes, you know, have tea. By the way, we're going to have some tea in a minute for you too, whenever you're ready to stop. <laughs> but it's so it's 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 a lot of fun. We make it fun. Yeah. 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 And then you also said you planted pawpaws. A neighbor uh, gifted us about 75 two-year-old pawpaws. He started them from seeds, and the seed source for these are the state winners of Ohio, <laughs> the state winner of Michigan, and another pawpaw contest, the winner of that contest, and he's he started seeds from those three competitions, and uh, he had more than he was going to plant, and so he sent them our way. He gifted us. We would give them a home. Wow. So they're in the field down here, and, and we're uh, trying to learn about what all goes on in pawpaws. We know them in the woods, but they right. don't they don't fruit very well in the woods. They're a colony type of tree. In other words, you plant one tree, and, and the next thing you know, that sends out roots, and then it sends up shoots. Oh. And now you have uh, two pawpaw trees, or three, or four. And that's how they grow in the woods, in patches. They're not very long-lived. They're maybe 35 years. But the colony keeps producing new ones, so you plant one and you might have a pawpaw patch there a very, very long time from now. We will not, we're not, don't have any, what would I call it, uh, we don't have any uh, things about that we're going to see the pawpaws in our lifetime. But that's okay. We didn't plant them for us. We planted them for somebody else to enjoy. That's an interesting thing you bring up because I think about that a lot with planting any fruit or nut trees. It just really requires that vision for the future. Is that like a philosophy you have with your land? Well, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, we try to look in terms of the long term. We try to promote good things to grow here. We try to control some of the invasives that are around. We're not extreme about it. In fact, uh, autumn olive is one of the invasives, but we treat that one like a crop because it grows woody enough that we can cut them and we make chips to for mulch. We have a chipper that mounts on the back of a tractor. And so we don't encourage them, but we tolerate them. And when they form big groups that are uh, problematic, then we turn them into chips and make use of them. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I think our approach is, is, like Larry said, is making it better, improving the land every time we have a chance mm-hmm. for the better so that the people that follows us, they can have an opportunity to, to enjoy what it is and maybe ho- and we pray and hope that they will continue to improve it to where it is uh, a place that they can feed themselves because mm-hmm. we have maple trees and we do mapling. We are benefited by the the sweetness of the maple, right? So that's a source of, of sweetness for us and for the people to come after us. And hopefully the pawpaws will be one of these days. Somebody can enjoy that fruit. Yeah. yeah. For the past few years, people have been connecting with Helen and Larry's farm through work exchange programs like Woofing, Work Away, and Help X. 
I was curious about what kinds of people came through. That's a bit of a variety. (laughs) It's a bit of a variety. We've had people ages 18 to uh, 50, actually 18 to 69. Becky was here this summer from uh, Holyoke, Massachusetts, and uh, she's ready to relocate. She's, you know, she's suburban life in the middle of a cluster of colleges in Massachusetts as not being the place that she wants to grow old in. And she sees a community here. So age-wise, there's a quite a span. We've seen couples, a lot of singles. We just uh, had a 27-year-old uh, male here on a 90-day visa from Germany. We've had uh, young people that just need to find a new something different. We've had travelers who culminated their two-year travel here because it's peaceful and quiet. And they'd been in 23 countries in two years. So it's, it's really quite varied. I think for many of them, it's taking a break to decide what's next. The visitors help with work on the land in exchange for room and board. But it's more than that for Larry and Helen. We'll hear more about that after a short break. And we'll talk about the land transfer arrangement that brought me to Helen and Larry's story in the first place. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. I'm speaking with Helen Vasquez and Larry Gillen on their farm near Paoli, Indiana. Before the break, we were talking about the folks who ended up joining them on their farm to work and to share in the particular approach to land management that Helen and Larry teach. I think that without realizing we're impacting the life of these young people or not to young people that come to us because we share our philosophy without wanting to but like for example trust we tell them well we don't check in here we don't you don't have a clock we let mother nature tell us if it's going to rain then we have to work longer if we don't if it's not going to rain and we have time we can work less So we made a commitment. You give us five hours a day, and we feed you, and we house you, and you have internet, free internet, free everything, right, for five hours. You know when you put your five hours. We're not going to keep track and say, oh, did you make the five hours today? No, we don't do that, because we trust. We work on the trust factor. And I think that for some of them, it's very, it's a new Mm-hmm. It's a new concept that you don't have to check in and, and that we're not going to see whether you put five hours today or not, you know. Mm-hmm. But also the respect for the land. I remember um, one of the young men who was here, he left the, the um, Tarzan running uh, while he was loading it. And I said, it's, it's running. And he said, well, I'm just going to, this will take 10 minutes at the 15 at the most. I said, but all that time, all those fumes are going to the, up to the environment. We are polluting this place. And he said, really? He said, yes, really. You know, so it was like, oh, I didn't think about it, you know. But everything is being conscious of everything we do about how we treat the land. That is, but for us, it's natural. You know, it's just think, it just, you just turn it off. Yeah. 
but it's it's not you're, if you're not accustomed to being aware of the impact that we have on our environment, and that's everything we do, everything, and it's a. It, I think I realize, we realize that many times we take for granted, which just think is automatic. Right. If, like me, you were wondering what a Tarzan is, it's the pet name they have for their Polaris 4x4 vehicle that they use to haul things around on the land. All of the, all of the things here have names. We, we, this is like a little like a little fantasy land here. In a way. And we also have Jane. Yeah, oh. we have Jane as well. What brought me to Helen and Larry's story is a unique land transfer agreement. I asked them to tell me about their future plans for their farm. Well, we have, we have uh, made some steps. We do not have children. We're realizing that, you know, our clock is ticking, and we have gifted the land to a tribal college in South Dakota. It's called Sintagleshka University, and they are a land-grant college as well as a tribal college. So they have an, you know, a farming sort of orientation. They have a gardening program. So really the future is up to them. Uh-huh. So we have what we've brought to the current setting with our goals of planting trees and growing things and uh, you know, trying to stay out of Mother Nature's way. And then uh, over time, we're looking at a transition. In fact, we're in the middle of putting together a five-year plan to make that transition happen. The small tribal college is on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. They imagine their land becoming a remote classroom for the college and a space for exchange. I wanted to hear more about how and why they made this decision. Well, I mean, we don't have children, so... I mean, you take it from there. And you don't want it to go to the state, you know, by default. You don't know what's going to happen to it there. So we'd like to have it in some direction that would maybe see some of our values and direction carried uh, forward Mm -hmm. after we're gone. We we didn't do this lightly. I mean, we started this, this discussion, Larry and I, about five, six years ago. So... It didn't happen overnight. Right. I think that choosing the university was the the way that we felt our legacy stands a greater chance of moving forward. We've been making annual trips for, this was our 10th year, going to Rosebud, Pine Ridge, and Cheyenne River reservations. We collect items from the local community we transport those out there in September every year and and uh, drop them off. And we've gotten to know some of the people at the at this university. And so uh, there's a couple of things that have steered us in this direction, and that is that we wanted some place that had some some history, and Sintagleshka University has celebrated their fiftieth anniversary. So they've been around for a little while. And uh, the other thing is that uh, that university is uh, founded by and, and steered by their own culture, the yeah, tribe's the culture, tribe's the culture, Lakota, the Lakota, yeah. the Lakota and, and the Sioux uh, culture is, is what it was founded on. Uh, it wasn't from some outside sort of support. 
those two things were important to us. One of the things that we did also help us with the decision to gift our land to Rose, but is because they really have an emphasis on food sovereignty. They really are very keen to that mm-hmm. and, and what all that entails, you know, so. There's a big interest in growing vegetables and preserving. Helen, last year, attended a meeting at our friends there, Dallas and Becky Chief Eagle, and they have a facility for hosting uh, events, and there was a... Uh, uh, the USDA. It was about presented canning? at preserving canning, canning oh, yeah. tomatoes. Someone yes, from the state uh, came in. That's a specialist on that. And at their place in Yellow Bear Canyon, they're putting up a uh, high tunnel. And we've seen other very sophisticated facilities going in to uh, increase sustainability on the reservations. How how might the university and the reservations? that are connected to it use this land, do you think? I mean, given like the location isn't right there, how how do you imagine or how have they talked about it if they have? Well, there are several things. I think that the first time we met with uh, Lionel, the president of the, he wants to connect this this place with the IU as an interchange of, of students and developing some cooperative stuff and carried all the way to Chicago. I mean, he really wants to go all the way to Chicago. Will that come to be? I'm not sure. But they want to establish some kind of connection between this place and IU and, and extend it when the time comes to Chicago. That's one, one thing. The other one is community enhancing, kind of working together about a cultural exchange of how, and we have been doing that. I mean, Larry and I have been fostering that concept with Orange County. We have brought people and from the universities and bring them together to, to like, for example... Um, Carmelita and Sonny, and that, Sonny. that run the uh, gardening school that's at Santa Gleska. and And they came here... And one of our focuses was to show them the community that we have. So we went to a large sustainable farm here in the county. We visited Brambleberry Farm, which grows a lot of perennials. We visited Lost River Market in Delhi and visited with other people. So they got to see the flavor of the of the community here and, and how people work together. And, uh, and then... Uh, we're also uh, we're also looking at a uh, possibility for uh, hosting like workshops here mm-hmm. and that's a be a central part of the plan we have for transition will be how we identify and cultivate people from the reservation to come here and interact we take a little trailer every year and we haul sewing machines and fabric and clothing and garden tools. And uh, and this year, uh, <laughs> we didn't bring the trailer back. It's, because they're uh, bringing it's back the buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> the tribal college maintains a herd of buffalo, and they've talked about sending buffalo meat to Larry and Helen since they're feeding and housing people on the land. Next year, and that will be, you know... Uh, 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 an initial part of the interchange over the long distance. 
But long distance is, is clearly uh, clearly something that we are working with and are aware of that yeah. we have to uh, find ways to make it happen. So there's a question that I have, and I don't know quite how to ask it, but, you know, there's a lot of causes and organizations or individuals that you could gift your land to if that was something you decided you wanted to do. And I just wondered if there was any thought about the idea of reparations or the history of this nation and land theft and all of those things and if if that came into your decision making with this or if it was more just we already have relationships with these people and so this feels like a good fit no i, I think uh yeah that's that's a very good question and and of course uh uh these are uh these are people who, the language of extermination and genocide uh, has been applied to and uh, is uh, in many ways still being acted out. And uh, uh, we think that uh, if we continue to <clears throat> leave it up to the governments and big institutions to do something, it may not happen. I we have a young man who came and he's and we were telling him about what we have done. He he grew up here because his father and and his kids grew up stayed here while we were running around trying to pay for the property. And he says, "Why?" I said, "We're just giving back what we took away from them, and that's the way we feel. I mean, Ireland is going back to where it belongs." Welcome to Indian Territory. <laughs> and that's what we say. Welcome Indian to Indian country. Territory. This is their territory. So, yeah. I think subconsciously, I mean, we didn't say we're going to do it because of reparation. We just knew that, that somehow this was the, they were the best people to have it. Well, I just think it's such a rare thing because a lot of people have that understanding but they're not going to put their property on the line. You know, <laughs> They're not going to um, you know, take, take that extra step. And I think that might be changing. Yes, I was just thinking about the same thing because I think what we started is beginning to take roots mm -hmm. and we hear other people that want to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I just, yeah. just heard an interview the other day, two days ago, regarding COP26 and... And uh, the issues we all face with climate change, and uh, they were interviewing an author. I believe he was uh, from the subcontinent of India, but he says, uh, you know, this uh, just using the earth as resources and taking from it is part of what's ingrained in colonialization, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and so he, his point was that, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is indigenous ways. Yep, I think that, you know, to, when you think of all the problems that we are experiencing as a, as a culture, and, and I'm talking about the American culture, um, I'm... I'm I am edified to hear how the Native American 
waves are coming almost imperceptibly, making their way feel into all of us in a very, almost imperceptibly, but real. And, and to your question about, uh, about, I think, what brought us here and not everybody's going to gift their land to uh, some indigenous organization, but uh, I, I think it is changing. And, uh, you know, Helen and I are rather ordinary people. Uh, and I don't think... Uh, we're the only ones that, you know, have these interests by any means. And I think it's going to uh, be materialized in, in this kind of action that we are taking with others. Well, I thank you both so much for talking with me today. Really, it's been wonderful. Well, we're, we're grateful for the opportunity. Thank and, you. and thank you for, for hearing us. It was difficult to pull ourselves away once it was time to go but they made sure to load us down with food, including chili peppers and kusha squash. Mine was the size of a three-month-old baby. We took a peek at the fig trees and all of the greens growing in the hoop house before heading down the trail to cross the river and head down the road towards home. Marie referred to the footbridge as a transition, sort of the portal into and out of a fantasy land. I agree. It does feel that way. Once it becomes their remote classroom, I wonder what the folks from Sintakaleshka College on the Rosebud Reservation will make of this very dreamy, yet very ordinary place along the Potoka River in southern Indiana, 1,000 miles from home. I wonder what they'll make of a pawpaw. I hope they enjoy its sweetness. For Earth Eats, this is Kate Young. I've been speaking with Helen Vasquez and Larry Gillen on their farm south of Paoli in southern Indiana. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Aabon Binder, Alexis Carvajal, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Helen Vasquez, Larry Gillen, Marie O'Neill, and Julia Valiant. Earth Eats is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Mm-hmm.